there, J. Crew. We are dropping into your feed on Black Friday, or Black Chavez, as we call it, to share a conversation with Tablet's editor-in-chief, Alana Newhouse. Alana published a piece in Tablet this week offering a different framework for viewing the challenges and the divides Americans face today. She tells us why she wrote the piece, what the piece argues, and what we can take away from it in our own lives. Here's our conversation with Alana Newhouse. You can read her piece at tabletmag.com. Alana Newhouse, founder and editor-in-chief of Tablet, welcome back to Unorthodox. Thank you so much. So we have dragged you before this tribunal of Jewish podcasters because you this week published a really, really fascinating piece in Tablet. And, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of our listeners know a lot about Tablet and read it regularly, may have found out about us through Tablet. There are other listeners who actually probably don't necessarily have any window into Tablet. And so I, I like the idea of bringing you on just to sort of, you know, bring all of our listeners a little bit more into the Tablet orbit um, and to, to sort of get a little window into what goes on over there. And I think this piece called Brokenism does a really, really nice job of, of sort of casting sort of the, the broader tablet world um, for readers and for listeners. So tell us about this piece. So the piece tries to articulate what I see as the most compelling debate right now around the future of America. A lot of us think that the debate is between the sort of the left and the right, or between Democrats and Republicans, or between liberals and conservatives, or even if you want to go back to Orwell, between authoritarians and libertarians. But what I started to feel is that increasingly there was another axis around which people were fighting, even though they weren't quite articulating it, which is around the health of our institutions. And when I talk about our institutions, I mean sort of what could really be called the establishment are universities and public and private education, publishing houses, our studios, think tanks, foreign policy establishment, sort of this, the mass of entities that has held together the center of American power and influence for, uh, call it 70 or 80 years. And that basically on the one side were people who felt that there was something fundamentally rotten about all of those institutions, that they had become corrupted or weak in a way that had become dangerous. And on the other side were people who believed that those institutions, though they have problems and have flaws, some flaws are very serious, that fundamentally the institutions are worth reforming. And that it's important to reform things, and that actually, more importantly, that from a um, an attitudinal perspective, that reforming an institution is much harder than simply setting it on fire and abandoning it. And so, the people on that side argue for a more moderate and engaged attitude toward American institutions. And I saw these two sides, sort of the way that I articulated it was that on the one side, there are people who I call brokenness, which are people who fundamentally, the only thing they believe is that those institutions are fundamentally broken. And on the other side are status quoists, people who are deeply invested in that center or the centering institutions in American life and want those to stay. And then I, I really feel that that more than right and left and more than Democrats and Republicans, more than liberals and conservatives, that that's really the that's the fight that I keep hearing people have. Alana, before we take this any further, 
I would like to give our listeners a taste of this piece. First of all, because I think it's absolutely gorgeous. And second of all, I think it would help everyone to get a sense of what it is you're talking about when you talk about brokenness. Could, could you read a little bit from the very top of the piece? Sure. I'll read the, the, the beginning of the piece. Two years ago, I wrote an essay in which I tried to explore the growing sense made more glaring during the first year of the pandemic that whole parts of American society were breaking down before our eyes. The central idea was that we must accept what is broken beyond repair in order to build our communities and institutions anew. Among the many people who wrote to me in the aftermath was a man around my age named Ryan, who introduced himself as a West Point graduate and combat veteran, biracial and from a multi-generation black military family. Quote, I've lived and traveled all over the world, but I cherish my family's deep roots in a small town in rural Ohio, he wrote. It seems very dark some days, but your closing nails it. It can almost feel easier to believe it can't be done, but it can, unquote. As I did with many others who wrote me heartfelt notes, I reached out to Ryan and asked for Zoom. It turned out we had more in common than either of us had guessed and we began a correspondence that's endured since then. At one point last year, Ryan said something that struck a nerve. Quote, I don't know what I identify as these days because everything has gotten so scrambled. I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I don't even think I could define myself narrowly as either a liberal or conservative anymore. The one thing I know that I fundamentally do believe is the premise of your piece, that the dominant institutions of American life in education, in the arts, and politics, are either totally broken or so weak or corrupt that they're becoming irrelevant. In a way, the only thing I know that I believe in is brokenness, unquote. Alana, as you well know, that, that resonates very strongly with me. That's exactly how I feel. I mean, I've written about this on tablet, uh, about feeling completely not just politically homeless uh, in the current kind of, you know, Republican, Democrat structure, but also kind of really confused by the terms of the conversation. Because all of a sudden, you know, you see, for example, so much of our conversation about technology and social media and the boundaries are so incredibly blurred. Like, could you really call yourself a liberal or even a progressive if you essentially believe in giving technology companies the rights to censor people whose opinions you don't like? No, it's ridiculous. Uh, in, in the fight uh, when when we were experiencing, you know, the the, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, could you really call yourself pro-science if you routinely pick and choose tidbits that serve your purpose uh, and immediately discard any opposing point of view as not just, uh, you know, illegitimate, but dangerous to the health and well-being of many? I, I, that is kind of what boggles my mind. And I suppose that is what led me to this idea of, you know, being very much a brokenness because I look at this and I said, we're actually having the wrong debate here, right? It's not like, oh, Republicans like this, but Democrats like this. If you support Trump, you must agree with that. And if you support Biden, you agree with the other thing. It's actually like, does this institution still do the thing that we entrusted it to do and if not, what do we do about it? Is that kind of a, a good way to look at, at the, the essence of the brokenism debate? Yes. Another good example is school closures during COVID, um, which were, as has been uh, 
over and over again shown and proven were quite detrimental to the most vulnerable among us. So kids with disabilities, kids with special needs, kids in the poorest um, and most challenged districts were the ones that suffered the most from school closures, which lots of people said right at the time was going to happen. And it felt like all of the public figures and many of the, the representatives of those institutions ignored that idea. And it almost felt like there was a fever that had captured them. It feels to me like questioning those authorities and questioning their judgment. It's not that they're always going to get it wrong. It's not that there's there's something, although in certain cases, maybe there's something fundamentally corrupt or decayed about it. But the point, the perspective of people who are brokenists, even people who two or three years ago found themselves very engaged in institutions is what if I need to question public figures and institutions and representatives because I believe that they may be, maybe even due to technology, vulnerable or susceptible to judgment that I think is wrong. So just to kind of clarify this, one of your strongest internal critics at Tablet Magazine about this point of view has been me, I think Mm -hmm. it's safe to say. One of the things I don't fully understand that I hope you can help me understand even better than your piece, Brokenism, does is whether it's the case that all institutions are broken. And if so, how could that be, right? Is it coincidentally or did they, did, was there a chain reaction where universities broke and then the publishing houses broke? And because it seems to me my disposition, and it's not a, it's not a, I'm not going to make a, a strong analytical defense of it, except that it's just my gut level, Kishka level sensibility is that life is messy and that it would be highly unlikely that lot, that everything would be broken at once. And therefore our job is to say that like at all times, some things are broken and some things aren't, which is why I'm sort of suspicious of the sweeping claim. Yeah. The short answer to your question is no, of course not. So it's not that all of a sudden everything died at once. Um, But there is something that did happen, which is technology. And technology is a very distinct change that happened. And it is a distinct change that happened comprehensively on our lives. So if you are looking for a monoclausal theory here, there is one, and it is defensible. And the, the defense of it is, if you think about all the institutions that you just listed, publishing, universities, media outlets, all of those have been radically changed by technology, not to mention every other aspect of our lives. And this is the thing that I say all the time. You know, we went through a very similar moment after the Industrial Revolution. Economic revolutions do this. They remake society. And sometimes they remake society in huge swaths, not just the, the, the regular way that things kind of slough off or molt. There are some moments that are more radical in flux than others. And so I want us to identify that I think we're in a moment of more flux than usual. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of us, or at least some of us who grew up, particularly in the 90s, when we thought about the, the tech revolution that was happening around us, it was like, we thought we were just getting email and like, we're going to be able to like download songs. We didn't understand that it was exactly the same in some senses as the Industrial Revolution. It was a massive, multi-layered 
in some senses, 360 redistribution of so much, not just the, the calories of work, but also just how we spend our daily lives and our energy. And also a revolution, if I may uh, interject here and correct me if you feel differently, but a revolution that seems profoundly non or even un-Jewish. I don't agree with that. I think progress is Jewish. And I think that there are values that happen in movements that can feel like they're counter to Jewish values. And it's important for Jews to crash in and conflict with those. Like, it is important for us to push back at those. Okay, so there's, I think there are two two levels going on here. One is a, a descriptive journalistic analysis that you're giving us of what has happened in the world. And the other, and you can tell me if I'm if I'm wrong about this, the other seems to me in your piece, something of a call to action as to how to then engage, in light of what you've described, how to engage the world. So is that right? And if so, what does, you know, the person in the street who's read your piece and thinks that sounds right to me, what do they do differently in terms of their work life, their education, their, where they live, you know, how how to be? So to me, that's been the most fun part of the reaction to things. Damon Linker wrote a Substack post about the piece this morning, which was great because he was basically like, oh, I've been trying to figure out what I am. I'm a status quoist. Whereas other people were like, I think I'm a brokenness. And then a a whole other swath of people wrote particularly um, really great emails saying, I'm sitting with this for the last six or seven hours and I can't figure out which one I am. I know that you're right about these categories. I'm just not sure which side I feel more kindred with. And that to me, those people are the best readers because what I'm trying to do with the piece is tell people that the camps that they've come to identify both themselves in and others in, and the the dichotomy that they've become entrenched in, seemingly to little good benefit, is the wrong dichotomy. And that in fact, if you take yourself out of the war of partisanship and the war of these ideas that we've all grown up with and this notion of these the two teams that we all either associate with or absolutely would never associate with and you realize that instead maybe the conversation is about your orientation toward the institutions that you interact with every day it will change how you live and see the world Okay, but let let me take something I care a lot about, like transit, right? When the Metro North commuter line extended up from New Haven to Springfield and all of a sudden there are hourly trips, it made it much easier and cheaper for my children who don't yet drive, but can get on a commuter train at the age of 10 or 12 or 13 to see their grandparents. Excellent. It also saves carbon footprint. It's like all sorts of good things happen. And I could bore everyone to tears with more about this, right? That's investing in an institution that's much maligned, which is American Rail, which has been badly treated and badly managed in many, many ways. There are plenty of people who are scornful of the kind of transit obsessives like me. But I hope that a brokenness would say like, yeah, like if a, if a politician is running and part of their platform is we're going to raise your taxes a dollar a month to fund extending light rail, that like a brokenness 
could get on board with that? Or is there, like, are there, are there ways in which a brokenness is still going to engage policy, including policy around some institutions that are, you know, somewhat hobbled, but are in my lifetime going to do a better job than whatever new thing we're going to come up with in the next several decades? So the great thing about America is we're 330 million people, right? Even if I say everyone exists on a brokenness status quo spectrum, where you exist will allow you to contribute in the way that you want to. So for example, in your case, I might say to you that you would take the example of this great new rail line and say, why doesn't everyone else have this? I'm now going to argue that all these other transit systems that aren't as good, don't actually have, aren't improving in these ways, have to. That now they have to do this thing that I just saw get done, that helped me in my life in this way that was real. I now want that for everyone else. Because if you actually want to engage in making rail in America better, there's plenty of places where you can engage and activate and plenty of places where it's completely rotten and could absolutely use engagement and activism and good ideas and examples of good ideas. So that's what I would say. I would say that the that coming at it from the perspective of brokenness, you'd say, okay, I'm taking this good example of something that should be all over. And I want to force everywhere else where it doesn't exist to address it. So tell us, where did the idea for this piece come from? Actually, it comes from you guys. So our conversation this summer, for people who are for our listeners, over the summer, the four of us, um, Liel, Stephanie, and Mark, and then um, myself, started a conversation about some of the conflicts that were emerging out of tablet, tablets coverage. I have an editorial strategy the way I have a parenting strategy, which is to say, like, I don't know it until after it's happened. Which is only only walk in the room when you smell smoke. <laughs> exactly. Um, what I really mean is, is that I over the past few years, we just let people write things that we find compelling and interesting. And what we found is that there are lots of different kinds of pieces in Tablet, but the kinds of pieces that crash into each other or have come into conflict with each other are on the one hand, pieces that seem to take as a given trust in American institutions, including um, the American federal government, including public figures, including major corporations and universities, and all sort of populace and sort of assume their value and assume their rightness. A bunch of our readers find those pieces silly and frankly, at, at worst, kind of dangerously naive. On the other hand, we have a set of writers who write pieces that are rooted in a deep skepticism of what I think a lot of us would have described as settled wisdom, things that we just accepted as good or as at least working. And these writers attack those things sometimes very aggressively and sometimes in language or posturing that the other half of our readers finds paranoid, crackpot, and, you know, even dangerous. Those are, by the way, all great adjectives to describe me. So thank you. <laughs> you contain multitudes, Leo. He contains both crackpot and paranoid. <laughs> With a sous of danger. 
I find both of these kinds of pieces compelling personally, which is why I like that we were publishing both of them. But increasingly, I found that readers were getting confused and they were confused about which, like, which one tablet really believed. And I kept trying to explain often helter-skelter around this or that piece and to different kinds of readers that I found value when we, that as an institution, as a magazine, I believe that we found value in publishing all of them and all kinds of pieces and all kinds of perspectives. And somehow people didn't, couldn't quite understand why. These conflicts were emerging around different pieces in different precincts. So different groups of readers found different pieces of tablets quote unquote, controversial or deeply problematic. And I am constantly the recipient of everyone's fury and often fury coming from completely different directions about completely different pieces. But that sometimes also bleeds into the staff and can the the fights that the pieces cause externally are also fights that they're causing internally. And one of the challenges with COVID is that because we were we haven't been in the office together as much in the last few years we haven't been able to have the sort of in-person interactions that i think were mark of our how we produced the magazine for so many years and a mark of how we fought the staff and the writers and editors at tablet i see as just really good fighters we fight well but we fight less well on zoom and we fight less well on text we really fight less well on text. Please stop texting each other. <laughs> anyway. Um, and so as one of the things that happened over the summer was that we published a couple of different pieces that were controversial and different from different directions. And I think that that conflict bubbled up and it bubbled up in a lot of different parts of tablet. But one of the parts of tablet where it bubbled up in the most sharp way was among you guys, in part because you, unlike everyone else at Tablet, have to engage with each other. Everyone else can kind of retreat to their own spaces, but you guys have a mandate to engage every single week. And that meant that the conflict was, I think, going to bubble up. Now that I look back on it, it seems obvious that the conflict was going to bubble up most overtly inside of the podcast. And so when I engaged and started listening sort of like I engaged as a family therapist. By the way, I've sent you guys my bill and I still haven't gotten, I don't know if you're, you're in waiting the, you're for in insurance the, to pay you're for in the it, queue. but I, okay. You're in the queue of bills to be paid. It's weird because we've invoiced you a lot since then and have continued to <laughs> be paid in kind. So we just started talking and we had a first conversation and I was so mystified because I felt like you, the three of you were talking past each other. I couldn't quite figure out why you, like, I couldn't follow, actually. I couldn't follow the fight. And then that night, I don't know, Steph, if you remember, I sort of woke up at three o'clock in the morning and I texted you and I said, I think you're having the wrong fight. I think this fight is a fight about, another way of putting it is it's a fight about settled wisdom or about what we can hold on to where we can stand together, what we, what we can at least all agree on, quote unquote. And I think that it occurred to me that actually the fight that you were having was about institutions and about a status quo, not actually about anything else. 
So then I set out to try to articulate it and mainly with your, with the help of you three figured out how to explain what I thought the fight was. And also I thought it was so important and why I thought all the sides to that conversation were really a reflection of the exact conversation that the entire magazine exists to maintain. You know, it's so funny. There's a line in the piece that I really, really love, um, which is where you say, to those who wonder why such different kinds of stories are being published by the same magazine, let me explain. We aren't confused. We are having a fight and it's one you might benefit from joining. And I actually want to say, like, if I think back over the past years of this podcast, the craziest thing it's done is not like, oh, we're talking about Jewish stuff. We're talking about guests. Like, there have been really amazing ways where like just forcing us to have conversations week in and week out is 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 challenging it's cathartic it's it's generative and it actually has been i mean we're talking about like being thankful for stuff not to get cheesy but like i really am grateful for this this chance to like have to talk to people i disagree with about all things like not even politics right like the three of us agree on on so many things from like what the right kind of pickles are to the bigger stuff. And I think that it's so interesting to me, and and I almost take it for granted to work at a place where pieces are regularly published that I disagree with. But that's the point. Like, I think it's, 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 it's so interesting to think about it like that, to sort of peel back the layers. And this all feels deeply Jewish, like arguing for the sake of heaven. Like that is really freaking Jewish. And and that's why it's so much a part of this place's DNA um, in, in a really profound way. Mark did it for me. Mark, in an email, you know, I was sort of arguing with Mark about, you know, arguing from a brokenness perspective. And Mark wrote me back this long email and I sat there staring at it for an hour and I thought, he's convincing me. Like it happened as I was sitting there taking in his email. It changed me. I felt it. I felt it happen as I sat there. And that is the whole point. I don't know why there is no glory to be had in journalism right now. There's nothing else for us to get out of this other than to be made smarter and sharper and more sensitive from the exchange of ideas. I want to get to America for a second, because it seems to me, and this is a theme that you weave throughout the piece, that there's kind of a like almost like an, an overset layer to this conversation in which many people feel like, hey, we're American Jews. We're somehow a historical. We're very different. We live under circumstances that transcend normal kind of Jewish understanding. I, I want to read an, an amazing paragraph from a piece chock full of them. We must be sensitive to the tremors that warn of impending earthquakes that could make our current homes dangerous. At different points in our history, that place was Spain, England, France, Turkey, Cairo, Baghdad, Beirut, Safed, Vilna, Warsaw, Prague, Vienna, Berlin, Paris, and too many others to count. In all those places, things got bad at some point, and some of them so bad that they became irrevocably broken to us. In others, Jewish life went on and continues to flourish in different ways to this day. Do you think there's something kind of uniquely challenging about the way so many of us American Jews attach ourselves to the notion of America as a as a malchut shel chesed, to borrow a, a quote from Rav Moshe Feinstein, a, a kingdom of graciousness and good? I'm sure. But if that is a problem, it's a problem I also have. I'm a profound believer in this country. 
for a bunch of emotional reasons, but for also a couple of pretty rational ones, I believe. One of which is that the country has built into its genetic material, both prizing or valuing of liberty and freedom, personal freedom, which to me is a first principle that allows it to kind of, it has a moral rudder that it can come back to. But more importantly, the country literally runs on revolutions. We run on change. The other list that's in my piece is a list of the things, the eras and the the moments that America has been through that were genuine crises. I can't imagine what it must have been like to be in this country around and after the Civil War. And sometimes I look at us and I think, I feel urgent about, I feel an urgency about this moment, but think about what it must have been like to be in the country then. The the temperature had to have been 15 degrees, 20 degrees hotter than what we've, anything we feel now. And they got through it. And they got through it even better than they were, much better than they were before. Similarly, the Industrial Revolution. Similarly, the the failures and and attempts at at reconstruction. Similarly, like the emergence of huge urban centers and everything that that did. It just feels like change is part of life. And it's also fundamentally part of this country. Unlike Europe, which in many ways I could argue is about tradition and about history. America is about the future in ways that are also maddening, I would say. Like America likes to run over its own history and just forget things. But that also allows us to just live inside of what's possible and not be constrained or held hostage by the past. So I'm sure there are arguments to be made. I'm sure there are very good ones to be made that all hope is lost and that America should be abandoned. They're just not, and they're arguments I've read and I've arguments I've heard. I've heard them too many times. I find them boring and they don't actually, I, I don't believe them. I, so I think if, if, if one's looking for a real America pessimist, I'm not so sure I'm, I'm your girl. But you are our girl for a Jewish conversation, right? You run a Jewish <laughs> magazine. This was published in it. Um, and in many ways, this dichotomy animates a lot of the spirit of Tablet today. So tell us, why is this a Jewish conversation? Like, why is this something that Tablet is interested in, that you're interested in? And why is this something that Jews should be paying attention to? I think if you boil this conversation down to one about brokenness, which is what I tried to do, you all of a sudden realize why it's a Jewish conversation. Because Jews have, as part of our history, an experience of encountering institutions as well as sometimes communities and whole societies that in one way or another, in small ways or sometimes in incredibly big ways, have become broken to us. And so we've had to learn to hone our perception of the cracks in the foundation. And we've also had to learn, we can't just get up and leave somewhere every time there's a little chip in a cornerstone, right? That also would not have made Jewish history as vibrant and exciting as it has been and tragic and challenging. But the point is, is you can't just be a hysteric. You're not just going to look at things and be like, oh my God, I'm a bit messed up. I have to run away right now. On the other hand, 
if things, if the ceiling starts falling down on your head, you probably need to get your kids out. Right. And part of what Jewish history has been about is it's been about how do we watch our world, both for our own safety and good lives, but also for the safety and good lives of those around us and be able to engage in ways that save what can be saved, fix what can be fixed and abandon what needs to be abandoned. To me, fundamentally, that feels like a Jewish enterprise. So I've talked a lot in the past about what I think the Jews owe America. And I think this is what we owe America. We owe America our engagement with its own health and with the health of its institutions so that we can maybe make it better. This was great. Alana, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you guys so much. 